Sketchy business on art connoisseurs and con artists. Some Paleolithic troglodyte may have invented visual art about 38,000 years ago. However, it took more than 37 years, 37,000 years, that is, for that first artist's descendants. An apt phrase, given humanity's current condition, to create a truly international market in which to sell the stuff. Although some trade in art dates back millennia, the usual pattern in post-classical times was for artists to put their talents directly at the disposal of a wealthy patron who sought to bask in the reflected glory of spectacular works. Only after the Renaissance did independent artists operating under their own name become the norm in Europe. Even then, remuneration was negotiated directly by artist and patron, not by professional dealers. Yet, artists in early modern Europe were certainly not indifferent to commercial considerations. Rembrandt, for one, was a notorious money-grubber who rigged bids for his prints and whose students painted coins on the floor to see if he would try to pick them up. And Peter Paul Rubens, never one to refuse fat fees from the biggest aristocratic collectors of his day, supervised apprentices to turn out Rubens en masse, with the result that some clients insisted on a written agreement that he would paint at least a few of the actual figures. Nor was there anything exceptional about the tastes of aristocrats. As prone to fad and fashion as any social climber today, they were likely to judge quality by how flattering a picture it painted, literally or figuratively, of themselves. A portrait of an individual in an elegant, expensive frame symbolized that he, and occasionally she by virtue of he, had truly arrived, until some busybody invented photography and radically democratized the process. However, artworks tended to remain within aristocratic families or inside religious institutions to which they had been willed as a literally last gas gasp attempt to expiate multiple earthly sins. Unless lost through theft or accident or, more dramatically, through the misfortunes of war. Art of war or war for art. Ancient civilizations celebrated military triumphs by parading through the streets back home looted effigies of their rivals' gods, much as did Julius Caesar after his conquests in Greece, setting off a fad for antique Greek statuary among Rome's elite that the era's foragers were delighted to satisfy. In more modern times, Napoleon Bonaparte, seeking to make Paris the cultural capital of the world, sent collectors to pick up choice items across conquered Europe. His biggest coup came with his threat to invade the papal territories. The Vatican bought him off with part of its massive hoard. Some items were sold for cash. The rest formed the seed from which sprouted the current collection in the Louvre. Although its holdings of looted artworks pale compared to the plunder of China, Egypt, Iraq, and Greece that subsequently graced the British Museum. 
to the glory of empire, queen, and country. While a helpful start, wholesale transfers at gunpoint could not create a modern art market. Individual pieces first had to become commodities bought and sold, like pork bellies or orange juice futures, indifferent to the fact that artworks, including personal portraits, were originally produced in a context that gave them a cultural and historical significance that could not be reproduced on some upstart's drawing room wall or even in an art museum. Then, in more recent times, they had to be further transformed into assets traded like stocks and bonds, and for the same reasons. Those shifts in the way art was regarded in turn depended on a more fundamental social change. Although old aristocrats held major collections over generations, they were not dependable customers for new material. They might control great tracts of land and they attached peasants, but they were usually short on cash. However, in countries like England and the Netherlands, in the 17th and 18th centuries, business tycoons piled up liquid wealth while aspiring to a social status to equal their economic one. Rich merchants were no longer blocked by inheritance or sumptuary laws, aped the rolling estates, fancy clothes, and art acquisitions of the landed class. Elsewhere, the elevation of money over inherited status was often bloody. But in Britain, the two tended to merge. The nouveau riche bought blue blood, while surplus sons of old families headed abroad to loot India, kidnap slaves from Africa, or ruin the ecology of West Indian islands with sugar and tobacco. Thus the British landed class, more flush than its continental rivals, became and remained until the late 19th century the white world's most dependable art buyers, rivaled only briefly by the Russian aristocracy in the late 18th. It was still largely a one-way flow. Material acquired by established families was held in trust for future generations. A modern high-end art market required, in addition to the triumph of liquid, over landed wealth, a major political and economic upheaval, maybe a whole string of them, to make the settled aristocracy and aspiring gentry cough up their hordes, along with dealers able to pull off with sharp business practices what Napoleon had accomplished at Bayonet Point. The transformation began in the late 19th century U.S., home of great fortunes, first from civil war profiteering, then from plundering the public patrimony during the westward expansion, then from creating giant monopolies and trusts. Robber barons, happy to fleece the government on public contracts, cheat their suppliers, cut throats of their competitors, and gun down striking workers, could subsequently launder their reputations by posing as patrons of the arts. Simultaneously, cheap U.S. grain and beef so undermined the financial position of Britain's landed elite 
that its government revised the law to permit old families to sell on the open market treasures previously held in trust. Of course, some managed to survive by hanging on to their art, then opening parts of their homes to paying visits from the great unwashed. The masses, including increasing numbers of insecure North Americans, were allowed for a fee to stare in wide-eyed wonder at cavernous rooms full of heavy furniture or to gawk at portraits of the ancestors of their social betters, even though the first were probably just as damp and cold as their own shacks and the second just as sour-looking as their own forefathers. Barring such a recourse, the law of comparative advantage kicked in. Art treasures of old British families moved west across the Atlantic into nouveau riche mansions. The daughters of U.S. parvenus moved east into aristocratic, if not necessarily holy, matrimony. And the contagion spread elsewhere. So much art fled France for the U.S. that the French government took over church properties, the main repositories, and Italy imposed in 1903 harsh anti-export laws that Benito Mussolini's regime later tightened into their current form. But the drain continued underground. In fact, the flow across the Atlantic to private collectors and, a little later, to great U.S. museums became a flood with the Bolshevik Revolution. In the chaos, artworks from personal hordes, museums, or orthodox churches became, for fleeing aristocrats and rich bourgeoisie, a way to move assets to safety, a practice only partly arrested once the new regime nationalized the museums, banned exports of cultural patrimony, and confiscated art and antiquities along with a stupendous pile of gold, silver, gems, jewelry, and jeweled brocades. The government then sold abroad much of the official hoard to finance industrialization. Private exports had favored France, while fleeing Russians, the higher their social status, the more Francophile their pretensions, preferred to take up residence. But the Soviet state preferred the U.S., where the sale of Russian art could finance machine tool purchases, build political sympathy, and avoid legal trouble that exiles in Europe might cause if they spotted their former property in an auction house. The flow was lubricated by U.S. carpetbaggers, who came to Russia during the revolution to pick up goodies cheaply from desperate families, then cultivated close relations with ministries handling sales. Among them was a soon-to-be oil billionaire named Armand Hammer, who sent back to the U.S., among other things, fake Fabergé eggs, using an exiled prince to shill for them. At home, he pioneered the department store approach to peddling artworks to wealthy U.S. women who envied their European sisters their sophistication, and wanted to distance themselves from their own comparatively uncouth social origins. Those rooting in the rubble of revolution were not just Arabists like Hammer. 
There were also the arrivés. As the USSR began to dump raw materials to increase its foreign exchange earnings, Andrew Mellon, oil and banking tycoon and secretary of the treasury to five U.S. presidents, where his main responsibility was engineering tax breaks for oil companies, responded to the laments of U.S. producers by slapping an embargo on Soviet timber and minerals, then cashed in on the financial difficulties his actions caused by collecting Russian art cheaply. In violation of the exchange regulations, he had imposed on everyone else. The job of bringing together the two sides of the market fell to a clique of ambitious, mutually suspicious high-end dealers. They bribed hotel staff to report movements of competitors, spread rumors that other dealers dealt in fakes, and, if engaged by customs as appraisers, overvalued stuff brought in by rivals to get them slapped with heavy excise taxes, assuming those rival dealers actually actually reported their goods. Their talents for smuggling were equally useful in evading export restrictions or import taxes. That could be risky. But high-end dealers regularly consorted with the rich and powerful. Like foreign correspondents, they were among the few professions with an excuse to turn up in distant and disturbed places where their intelligence networks could also serve their home or politically adopted countries for political espionage. For example, Anthony Blunt, the so-called fourth man in a Soviet ring inside British intelligence, used his art dealership as cover to run a network of dealer spies across Europe as well as to make off on orders from the British monarch with the Hanoverian crown jewels to prevent victorious U.S. soldiers from stealing them first. Nor did he emerge from a professional vacuum. Perhaps the most celebrated of the early 20th century dealers, Joseph Duvigne, put his Paris, London, and New York galleries at the disposal of British intelligence during both world wars. Well-placed dealers could also recruit an occasional consul or ambassador to move stuff around for them in the diplomatic pouch. Back home, they assured their upper-crust clients of supposedly gilt-edged art investments and offered special financial terms to sweeten the pie figuring that they would likely have the chance to buy the material back cheaply from the estate and resell it elsewhere. Duveen was so cocky that he would sell works he didn't have, and then afterward negotiate with their real owners. The golden age prior to the present was likely the 1920s, with income and wealth rising sharply for a privileged few. Although in the 1930s, dealers could pick up prime pieces at distressed prices, there were few buyers. The war years were worse, at least for the so-called free market. In post-war years, enormous attention would be paid to artworks stolen by the Nazis from Jews 
and virtually none to artworks stolen by Allied military personnel from anyone else. Of course, interest in Holocaust art, too, is somewhat episodic. Its recent revival perhaps reflects not just outrage over the atrocities of the war era, but also dramatic price increases. These in turn draw attention to the fact that some of the prime pieces restored with great fanfare to the heirs of their previous owners in Europe were quickly flipped to end up in the hands of rich U.S. collectors who had been prime agitators for recovery. Morality, at least with respect to art, seems not only ethno-politically selective, but rises and falls with the market. Cash or cachet? In the decades right after the war, that market was relatively calm. Tastes were less ostentatious, the distribution of income not so widely skewed, the tax system more progressive, financial markets better regulated, and inflation low. Although things began to pick up in the 1960s, the real change was in the next decade when the art market began to soar. The popular explanation is that fear of inflation drove investors to seek safety in durable goods. But the real reasons in the U.S., heartland of this second modern art market transformation, are more profound. They really lie in a shift in attitudes towards celebrating instead of excoriating excoriating conspicuous wealth combined with a dismantling of social security, which, along with the demise of union power and the slashing of upper-income tax rates over the next few decades, turned the discreetly rich into the flagrantly super-rich. Add to that the impact of bubble economics in creating hundreds, even thousands of pretenders, to a social status to match their decidedly unearned wealth. The emergence of this new (laughs) parasitocracy helped to convert artworks along with everything, from antique furniture to vintage wines into speculative assets, flipped quickly from one buyer to another and arbitraged across national markets or even between auction houses. With the old aristocracy of Europe, the commercially-minded gentry in Britain in the 18th and early 19th centuries, and the nouveau riche of the U.S. in the late 19th and early 20th, the objective had been to acquire expensive art as a mark of status. But as the 1960s evolved into the 1970s, and accelerating in the decades beyond, The logic increasingly worked in reverse. Certainly a collection of high-end art remained a symbol of wealth, but it also became a tool to obtain yet more, even though in reality, art as a whole, as distinct from a few spectacular pieces, has performed even more poorly than government bonds, the ultimate conservative investment over the long term. For the next several decades, despite occasional setbacks, prices of some items did skyrocket, 
For example, a painting purchased by David Rockefeller in 1960 for 8,500 sold in 2007 for 73 million in a particularly frenzied, frenzied market. In Damien Hirst's Tiger Shark in Formaldehyde, originally commissioned by advertising magnate Charles Saatchi for 50,000 pounds, sold 14 years later to hedge fund tycoon Steve Cohen for 12 million. Albeit Hearst agreed to first replace the rotting original shark with a new one and to increase the strength of the formaldehyde. Publicity from such spectacular individual sales attracted new buyers, making the movement self-sustaining. So too did the titillation from events like when the ex-spouse of mega fraudster Mark Rich kidnapped his Van Gogh until he agreed to a 200 million divorce settlement, whose unwritten clauses may have included her influence with the Clintons to secure for Rich a pardon for offenses that might have carried several centuries of prison time. No doubt all the excitement even gave the struggling unknown artists some faint hope that a work in which they had invested years of study and effort might rise in price enough to pay the rent on an unheated garret. Today's prestige art market is much more liberal than its noble ancestor. It welcomes a diversity of clients with a variety of motives provided only that they have enough money to paint the town red or blue or green, or even purple with pink polka dots, a guaranteed bestseller in the current climate. As in the past, but even more so now, some participants are rich collectors who seek through ostentatious display formerly associated with aristocratic wealth to disguise, or in a manifestation of equal insecurity, sometimes to celebrate their own ascent from more modest social ranks. Take, for example, U.S. billionaire Norton Simon, who, when he decided to buy Rembrandt's Tutius, wanted to set a record for the highest price ever paid for a work of art. So at the auction, he actually bid against himself several times for something that, as matters turned out, was probably painted by one of Rembrandt's students. Other buyers may be simply people with no particular interest in the items, other than the fact that they both cost a lot now and are expected to cost a lot more in the near future. For example, two French dealers convinced that the Art Deco furniture creations of André Sorny, hitherto dismissed as a provincial by the Paris-dominated French art scene, were ready to be manipulated into a takeoff began quietly buying and stockpiling. If at an auction two Sornay pieces were on the block, they would bid energetically by telephone to keep their identities secret for the poorer one, stopping just before victory to push up the price in order to exhaust the winning bidder's resources before the really fine piece came up. Then, to coincide with publication of a book on the long-dead Sornay, a signal in the art world that someone is about to make it, they announced 
though their huge inventory was for sale at outrageous prices. After a pause, the stampede began. One English banker phoned to ask if he could buy the most expensive piece they had, no matter what it was, an expectation that the market would continue to skyrocket. Exactly the logic that played out so brilliantly for England's bankers in the property bubble. Yet others seek not the ego boost from personal possession, but the accolade from public donation, provided they can arrange an inflated appraisal and a fat tax write-off, and maybe dictate the press release. Yet others are speculators betting on the course of prices, a game rendered more attractive by opportunities to hide capital gains from the revenue authorities. Some seek a de facto corner on the market for particular artists and invest so heavily that they act, as one gallery owner described, less like gamblers than owners of the casino. By withdrawing a large inventory into their private stock, they steer the market upward at each successive auction until they are ready to sell. That works best with old items by long-defunct artists. Yet, by the curious economics of the art market, the same result can be achieved with works by new living artists. It suffices that dealer and artist agree to make something quietly available at a discount to a prominent collector. The news that the collector has acquired the item sets off a buying frenzy. And once a modern artist is hot, the greater the artist's production, the higher rather than lower the price the work will command, as parasitocrats stumble over themselves to catch up with each other. This, of course, is not commercial fraud, but the magic of the market at work. Most buyers are private, but some customers are corporations seeking to dress up their public image. Who cares if they were caught dumping carcinogenic wastes into a municipal water supply, as long as they are publicly acknowledged as boosters of the arts? Art has also proven an excellent tool to pay bribes or evade price controls. In Japan in the late 1980s, when the government tried to clamp a lid on a property bubble, corporate buyers might write a check for a sum that conformed to the legal limit for a purchase, give a multi-million dollar piece of art to the vendor, then buy it back a short time later for several times its supposed value, neatly transferring the extra money to the seller of land while simultaneously pushing the high-end art market up further. Then, there are museums and public galleries whose appetites, whether satisfied by direct donations or by cash gifts to finance their own choices, vary from the hearty to the voracious, without them being too fussy about the origins of the stuff they consume. In keeping with the public puritanism of the late 19th and early 20th centuries, U.S. museums and public galleries were set up by the super-rich as places not for a cultural elite to rhapsodize over venerable masterworks or the wonders of lost civilizations, 
The ladies did that in their own drawing rooms, while the gentlemen gathered to grouse elsewhere over brandy and cigars. But to morally uplift the masses, trying to keep them out of saloons and brothels, where they might have had a lot more fun. Instead, the great unwashed were allowed, from a respectful distance, to look at but not to touch things that their social betters had discarded from their dining room walls, perhaps after a skillful restorer had hidden the slashes and stains resulting from glasses broken on the painting. During some drunken carousal, that way both underclass and uberclass had their sense of proper place in the social order reinforced. Therefore, compared to major European museums, most originally endowed by high-ranking aristocrats, success in North America depended on mass rather than class appeal. While great European museums built reputations on stable collections of well-known works, those in the U.S. needed a constant influx of new, preferably sensational material. They still do, perhaps more so now, to keep attendance climbing in the face of intense competition from video arcades and reality TV. Hence the zeal to exhibit trendy material. That also helps the museum peddle knickknacks emblazoned with images from the display, a practice that has spread to big European museums. Today, even the Louvre has thematic trails to take patrons to crowd-pleasers like the Mona Lisa, where they might jostle with the rest of the mob for a digital photo before decamping to the, the gift shop to buy for their screaming three-year-olds something like a plastic mug featuring that enigmatic sidelong glance. However, European museums are usually forbidden to resell, while North American ones can dump older acquisitions already milked for their entertainment value on the secondary market. In Europe, too, because most major museums are now funded directly by the state, they are accountable like other public institutions. That, in theory, makes them more wary about the origins of material they put on display, unless it was stolen abroad by a senior officer in the line of duty so long ago as to no longer appear on anyone's hot list. Once they have an item, they, unlike U.S. museums, are generally stuck with it, unless relieved of that obligation by an embarrassing court order. By contrast, U.S. museums rely overwhelmingly on what now passes as private philanthropy. In the past, the super-rich set up museums to hold personal collections, perhaps also endowing them with operating capital. Then came major tax changes in the 1950s, one of the seminal events in the evolution of the modern speculative art market. It was fortuitously timed for an era when Western Europe was still reconstructing from the war, and many of its old holdings in private hands were again available for sale at bargain prices. Not only did any donation of an art object become tax-deductible against income, as well as reducing future estate tax obligations, 
but the deduction was set at current market value rather than acquisition cost. Thus, someone could pick up a Picasso in Europe on the cheap, hold it for several years, then donate it for many times the purchase price, getting a fine tax deduction for up to 30% of their total tax due that year. Even better, until removed in tax reforms in 2006, it was possible in the U.S. to make a fractional gift, i.e. to donate an artwork for public display for only part of the year and still claim the full deduction. If the deal was arranged as a remainder trust, the artwork could remain in the possession of the donor until their death, while the donation was immediately credited against taxes. Aldous had the same kind of impact in uprooting European art hordes, even if not as great as flooding the world market with American grain and meat did in the late 19th century. In Canada, too, a donation is appraised at so-called fair market value, and while most types of charitable giving cannot exceed 20% of taxable income, for cultural properties, the sky is the limit. In other words, private philanthropy in North America and in Britain, where the rules are comprehensible only to tax lawyers and forensic accountants, is just a backhanded form of state subsidy in which the government cedes to private, rich private citizens the right not to pay a certain amount of taxes the privilege of deciding which charitable, religious, or educational cause gains the benefit, and the power to shape just how the endowed institution will use the bequest. Inevitably, these practices also affect how much care a museum or public gallery will put into vetting potential acquisitions. After curators have buttered up a billionaire to coax him to donate an artwork, they are less likely to ask questions about its origins. Of course, that opens up grand opportunities to scam the system. One way is for someone in the inner circle, perhaps a trustee, to give to their art museum a cash donation, then quietly sell to the museum artworks for the same sum, getting the money back. That avoids an outside appraisal of the artwork. Donors get a full tax write-off for the donated cash and can use the sale as proof that they were in the art business and therefore able to claim expenses as a further deduction. Probably more common is the practice of donors creating consortia to buy works en masse at well below the unit price they would normally expect to pay have them re-evaluated sharply upward, then give them to the museums or public galleries for a 100% write-off. In the event of an honest difference of opinion, tax authorities, to avoid tortured screams from the arts community, usually accept the higher appraisal, particularly since the panels that advise them are stacked with representatives of the very professions most benefiting from the tax dodge. The curator of the acquiring institution, too, has every incentive to concur with an inflated appraisal. The cost falls on taxpayers at large. 
Even better, the museum can resell the stuff it originally got for free, possibly using the exaggerated appraisal to set a base price, with no tax obligation. By contrast, continental European museums never seem to lack for donations, without donors receiving a tax write-off.